support for this episode comes from Awesome Merch. Awesome Merch is the leading supplier of custom merchandise and print to the craft beer industry, with over 700 custom products made in-house. Awesome Merch understands how to take your brewery's branding and designs and turn them into a range of merch that you can use as an additional revenue stream, as well as building brand recognition with your fans. That's why Awesome Merchandise has been trusted by more than 100 craft breweries, both big and small, to bring your brand to life on t-shirts, hoodies, headwear, and so much more. Awesome Merch works with the likes of Northern Monk, Beaver Town, Magic Rock, Camden Town, as well as Leeds International Beer Festival and Indie Man Beer Con, to name just a few. To find out more about Awesome Merch, visit awesomemerchandise.com today or email beer at awesomemerchandise.com to speak to one of their friendly team. Support for this episode comes from Beerwolf. Beerwolf understands that never before have so many incredible flavours, styles and brands been waiting to be discovered. That's why Beerwolf has built an online store to make it easier for you to find delicious beer in a way that's affordable, convenient and fun. Beerwolf.com gives you access to hundreds of beers from local and international brewers at the touch of a button, delivered direct to your doorstep in just 24 hours. To find out more about Beerwolf, head on over to beerwolf.com, that's wolf with a U, beerwulf.com, and discover your new favourite beer. Whether that's a New England IPA or a Belgian blonde, there's a world of beer to unlock. Cheers to that. About a million years ago, when I lived in New York City, a book came out by Brian Key with a picture on the cover of a drink in a glass with a couple of ice cubes and the tagline, are you being sexually aroused by this picture? Although I wasn't, I picked up the book anyway. Called Subliminal Seduction, it was a massive bestseller in the late 1970s and into the 80s. The author claimed that ads were embedded with images of death, sex, and bestiality. He reasoned that if you were a big, big company spending millions on an ad campaign, you'd pull out every stop you could and use subliminal images being one of them. Although he thought different images appealed to different buyers, about the only one I remember was for whiskey and bourbon drinkers who he claimed the industry saw as 50-year-old bitter male losers with a death wish. So, in bourbon ads, there were images of death and horrible ghosts and demons hidden away in the ads. In the paperback copy I had, I looked closely at all the photos in it, and I'll be honest, I didn't see any images of death, sex, and definitely not bestiality. Brian Key died young and without him being there to defend his work, psychologists and others said the whole idea was a sham and none of it was true. Saying these images were in the ads, well, that was like saying you could see a unicorn in the clouds. Once the image was planted, everyone could see it, even though it wasn't there. And I agreed with this, until one day I was catching the subway train at South Ferry. While waiting, I started looking at a bourbon ad, which I'd previously seen in a magazine. With the ad now blown up about a zillion times, the images were there, looking like those Nazi-killing spirits in the first Indiana Jones movie. How did they do this back in the pre-Photoshop days? I have no idea but they were most definitely there. 
Hi, this is Velo Mitrovic from Reby Media, and although beer has not been mentioned once yet, you are listening to the Brewers Journal podcast. Joining me today is Alex Wilson of Nottingham's Black Eyes Brewery and Tim Sheehan, editor of the Brewers Journal. That eye-opening ad in New York City has spawned for me a lifelong interest in marketing. What makes people buy what they buy? However, I've moved on from Brian Key's subliminal, and what I do look for now are brilliant branding efforts, labels, logos that stand out, that make you take a second look, or tempt you into saying at the pub, yeah, I'll have one of those. Right now across the pond, craft beer sales are flat from the big to the small. In a report I read yesterday, companies are looking at a 3 to 5% growth as doing good. The room around the campfire here in the UK industry, that is going to be up for a shakeup this year and next. You might be making the best tasting beer on the planet, but in a crowded market, how are you going to get somebody to make that discovery? You have to think of marketing. While I respect the efforts of some of the big boys, especially Guinness and Carlsberg, what I admire the most is the work of those craft brewers who, with a budget of a McDonald's cheeseburger, still pull off the amazing. And that's why I'm here at Black Iris today. Alex, can you give us a quick history of Black Iris? Uh, okay, so Black Iris was uh, first came into came together in 2011 uh, when myself and uh, Nick Focard uh, set up the company. Uh, we previous to that we'd both been working in the Lincolnshire Poach Pub in Nottingham, which is where we met, pulling pints. Uh, he was a degree level chemist, and I was a beer enthusiast. Uh, and when we were living together in Forest Fields, it seemed a good time to basically expand our homebrew knowledge. Uh, the pub that we used to work in was owned by local brewery Castle Rock, who were very uh, accommodating in letting us turn up at the brewery and uh, and volunteer, and so we could learn, learn on the job whilst also pulling pints. But in 2011, we thought that we'd uh, have a real go at seeing if we could make the company work. Uh, through the grapevine, we heard that there was a pub in Derby called the Flower Pot that had... Uh, a brewery in the back uh, that had been mothballed for a couple of years. Uh, so we asked them if they would be okay with uh, two young lads from Nottingham coming over the A52 and uh, uh, basically renting the space out uh, to to brew beer. And they said yes. So uh, with a pretty small amount of capital for some raw ingredients uh, and uh, a couple of plastic casks, uh, we set up shop in, uh, in Derby in 2011. Uh, and since then, uh, yeah, the rest is history. How much beer do you produce uh, a month here? A month here. So we're a 10-barrel uh, plant, brewer's barrel, uh, which is basically the equivalent of 45 casks per brew. We brew three times a week. Uh, my math isn't great, but that's, uh, yeah. It's a bit of beer. It's a bit of beer. It's a fair <laughs> It's a fair amount. I mean, looking at your brewery, I mean, it looks to me pretty cramped in there, uh, Expansion plans? Uh, yes, uh, we are looking to expand certainly over the next uh, 12 to 24 months. Uh, we're in the process of looking uh, how big we can feasibly afford to get whilst also kind of pairing up where we might move to. Uh, the difficulty with Nottingham is a lot of the industrial estates that are very good for the actual brewing side of things and not necessarily near where the footfall is for the creation of tap houses. 
or kind of ways to interact with the public a little more, which is fundamentally something that we'd like to do since we have no pubs as a company. Where did the uh, name come from? <laughs> so the the name Black Iris uh, comes from back in uh, when I was uh, leaving university. I was spending my time with quite a lot of socialist anarchists, uh, left-leaning uh, political uh, thinkers, uh, activists in Nottingham. Uh, Nottingham has an incredible scene for all this type of thing, and, and I feel it to be quite a, a left-leaning city, even though the Brexit vote might make you think otherwise. Uh, and during that time, uh, there was a proposed idea to set up a housing commune, and uh, Black Iris was one of the proposed names uh, for the commune. Uh, had a kind of like a, a kind of edgy kind of anarchist kind of, but also kind of beautiful natural amalgamation. And I, I, I like the combination. And uh, the name wasn't used for the housing co-op, and the housing co-op never happened uh, as as was. Uh, but it's kind of loosely themed around the idea that iris plants uh, send out rhizomes which grow horizontally so it's about making horizontal power structures underneath the surface rather than top-down uh, vertical hierarchies if uh, if you want any further reading read anything by Deleuze and Guattari <laughs> if you're not familiar with black iris the cans have a black and white cartoon drawings on them that if you're my age, you would say, oh, that's got kind of a passy nod to underground cartoonist Robert Crumb. Who came up with these? So uh, all of our designs are done by a guy called Kev Gray, who's based in Liverpool. He's a very famous graffiti artist. Uh, uh, in his own right, he has been doing uh, his style of uh, art and design for uh, considerably longer than Black Iris has been incorporated. Uh, he's worked with companies as big as Van Shoes and done gig posters for bands as small as Walk the Plank. Uh, it's uh, has a real kind of a real kind of uh, breadth of what he does. Anything from uh, in, you know skate, designs for skateboards, designs for shoes. Uh, and he uh, basically uh, he uh, lived in Sheffield for a while I grew up in Sheffield um, before moving to Nottingham uh, I knew of him through going to a lot of kind of DIY punk and hardcore gigs in the city uh, I knew of him uh, through the through the general scene and then basically when we moved to Nottingham we were looking to rebrand a lot of the beers uh, from the ones that we had from the previous ones that we'd done in Derby and uh, we'd always done black and white designs from day one it's just something that we thought uh, aesthetically looked particularly pleasing always meant that the designs were very vibrant but so basically we contacted him and had no idea whether or not he would say yes to such a small project but uh, incredibly uh, he turned around and said he would love to get involved in the project. And uh, since the first design, we've just loved everything that he's done for us. It's been great. I mean, the designs, I'm looking right now at, at your walls and you, you have them on them. And they are truly an amazing set of designs. I mean, 
you know, there is a lot of detail. I mean, do you think any of them have a little too much detail in them? Well, what's what I find fascinating about the designs is that regardless of the level of detail, you can really clearly see what you're drinking from the name of the beer to the ABV to the mm. style. Even with the most complex designs that have, you know, quite a lot going on visually, like good movie posters from, you know, the B, B movie sci-fis uh, from the from the 60s onwards, you you know exactly the the fonts are always so bold. And also the benefit of it being black and white is that there's such a contrast between the dark and the light. So everything is really crisp, clear, pronounced, even if it is got quite a busy design. I mean, take our Ride the Lightning design that's got, you know, a thunderous sky and a metal-clad horse head. The logos of the two breweries that collabed on it, Us and Twisted Barrel. But you can clearly see every aspect of, of what you're drinking. On that on that tiny pump clip, which is only eighty two mil in diameter, but crams a lot in. You know, again, looking at them, each one, while each one is similar, each one's completely different, too, which I think just makes them stand out. And I, you know, I just think, geez, how much longer is it going to be able to crank these designs out? Uh, you told me um, at times Kev's come up with the idea before you come up with the beer. Uh, yes, uh, there's there are times where when I I go to Liverpool occasionally to go meet Kev and we kind of talk about ideas for future beers, and quite often he'll tell me a design that he's that he's thinking of working on that sounds like a particularly interesting visual, and then sometimes we retrofit the recipe to uh, to fit the design just to make sure that we can use such a cool cool imagery. So I'm a small brewery. I'm starting out. I think my beer's okay. I have no Kev. Where do I find somebody like Kev? Well, to be honest, to be fair though, we didn't always have Kev. We started off with the incredibly named Evangelos Christodoulou, who was an incredible uh, tattoo local tattoo artist who was based in Derby, and uh, he used to make the most beautifully innate swirly patterned kind of almost like sleeve tattoo style things uh, and the final result you could see the you could even see the intricate pencil shading on the on the works so quite you know incredibly like total opposite ends of the spectrum from what kev was doing but the best thing that you can do is just follow your local art scene contact people that you that you'd like you know Without sounding cliched, Instagram is a great tool for finding local artists, just as it is finding local designers. And you can all you can do is ask. I mean, they can say they can say no, and then you have to move on and find a new thing. We were lucky that that we had a Kev that said yes. You can't be that for a Kev. <laughs> With your designs, nobody's actually copied that, have they? In the I mean, like with um, oh, I think we were talking about Cloudwater. That when cloud water seemed to come out, they were extremely unique. But it seems like what other people are now beginning to do something cloud watery. Or... I think cloud water had a, an incredible way of kind of moving that kind of aesthetic into modern art. They really kind of did some wonderful things with their beer labels and and still do. Um, but I suppose the idea is that there's a lot of people that still do quite a lot of colorful, vibrant cans. And each each brewery will have a a nuance, a little USP that they'll add to their label. 
but um, we have been lucky in a, in a in a sense, I suppose, that not a huge amount of brewers seem to be doing the black and white monochrome in the same way that in the same way that we do, and maybe that's because Kev is such a an, an established force in the in the game. But uh, I think it's also just because, uh, well, I guess that lots of color gives you a lot more colors give you options but for what we but for what we do we know that our imagery tends to lend itself to black and white anyway a lot of the stuff that we kind of theme our beers on is kind of based around you know death metal songs or kind of uh, sci-fi related films or skateboard surfing extreme sport aesthetic and naturally a lot of that stuff is kind of gravitates towards black as a predominant color anyway that leads to my next question because your labels they strike me a bit of a bit of death metal a bit of skateboard are you turning off people who have no interest in in either well i'd hope that we might even turn people on that had (laughs) that had no idea of of these subcultures i mean that i mean the great thing about uh the great thing about the, the bits and pieces that we do is that um you know last year we did labels that had two-tone scar boys on them and and rude girls and you know you know celebrates that kind of culture that we have here i mean some of the stuff celebrates maybe more you know american surf and skate cultures uh a lot of the stuff that we do is probably quite heavily tattoo influenced but that's not to say that we're trying to put off you know, prim, proper, middle-aged dudes that have no interest in that world at all. I mean, hopefully uh, it kind of, they'll just be kind of intrigued with the visuals anyway. And if they want to kind of look further into those things, it's more kind of, we kind of, we we just enjoy kind of putting kind of cultural Easter eggs kind of hidden in, in the kind of, in the subconscious of people's <laughs> heads, I suppose. <laughs> it's a heavy thought. <laughs> did you uh, did you develop Black Iris marketing through osmosis and just let it happen naturally, or is this something you spent considerable time trying to figure out? Uh, I suppose realistically, uh, the word that I often go to when describing this type of thing, especially our approach to all businesses, that we like to do things organically, which just means that we do them at our own pace without really kind of feeling any kind of push or pressure from outside forces. We kind of brew the beers that we want to brew. We design the beers the way that we want to do them. We kind of, we don't have a tap room here because we don't have the space. We used to run events when we could um, because we love supporting the local community, uh, supporting the beer drinkers. We used to put on bands, support local musicians. But when that became too difficult because we started becoming a more bigger profitable business you know we had you know we 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 knew that rather than put more pressure on us that we could just take a take a step back so with our marketing we with in a similar type of vein we don't go out to set to kind of say well this beer might attract 18 to 24 year olds and this beer might attract women over 50 it's more to do with creating something that we are are proud of something that we enjoy something that we kind of something that feels 
in a way safe that we know it's you know this is you know our world i don't feel any kind of need to kind of create something that i would have no um no experience of um i suppose um, you'll probably lead on to this in a bit with the other marketing campaigns but you know if i have no direct experience of things i find it very difficult to then kind of put myself into that kind of uh i would i'd find it hard to sell uh I'd find it hard to sell a pink IPA as a as a you know thirty year old bloke, or you know I you know you've got to kind of understand your own context with with these type of marketing things. You know the way you're describing it, it almost reminds me of a you know manufactured bands throughout the ages when uh, you know at the corporate world you know they'll throw together a band like Boston or. Uh, I say there's there's four women, um, the Spice Girls, something like that, and um, and then as opposed to like an organic band, a band that created itself, and you get the difference in it. And while some of these bands that were created by a big industry have done extremely successful, eh, you know, do people still listen to them though after a while? And they do seem to miss something that's organically growing. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, th- that type of thing is is sometimes a little bit intangible to put your finger on. I think it's what people generally call soul, you know, a kind of an authenticity that's driven by a kind of a a real life understood experience rather than a, you know, oh, we we need to brew this beer to get into this bit of market or like this supermarket want us to brew a lager, so we need to do this type of thing. That's just not what we are particularly driven by. We would rather carry on brewing... 9.5 9.5 barley wines and silly blueberry milkshake concoctions rather than be forced into a corner. And your blueberry concoction is extremely tasty. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> it went down very smooth. Um, Paul Housley at Purity uh, was telling us that, that he saw a lack of a clear marketing plan with spelling doom for a lot of the small craft brewers. Would you agree with that? Uh, I think I would. Um, I think I would. It's uh, if the standard of the standard of the standard of marketing and of branding is so high nowadays that to, that to come in to the market without it is not paramount to failure, but it's definitely something that you've got to. Um, it's definitely high on the consideration list if you've got, you know. A bottle shop, you know, fantastic local bottle shop that's got, you know, two hundred bottled beers on the shelves. Well, which beers are you likely likely to go for? The one that looks like someone's, you know, hand hand drawn a label might not necessarily work. I mean, there are always people that book the trend on that. I mean, locally, you know, we've got Liquid Light, who are a great brewery, who have uh, they create all of their kind of labels themselves using a, a light box technique and they're and they're beautiful beautiful stunning bits of art and they do that themselves and it's it's visually fantastic so they do that on an even smaller budget than us and uh, they've thought that through and they have a clear process so exactly so even though they are and and similar to us you know even though we're a lot smaller than purity we've still you still have to have 
the same mindset to you know to an extent i mean we didn't always have it you know certainly when we were in derby we would send out laminated pump clips you know or you know pump clips that we'd made with clip art you know but that was out of necess- nece- you know necessity <laughs> in, in the early 70s this really bad us brewer uh, lucky lager they decided that uh, nobody, no one, you know, under thirty was drinking Lucky Lager, so they came out with a, with their beer for the youth, and it was called King Snedley Beer, and um, and I've already sang to you the the clever jingle, and uh, and I won't won't sing it again. We'll probably keep that quiet for another twenty years, um, but um, but at the end of the day, even though it was a really clever can, even though it was an extremely clever commercial, even though the jingle was clever. It was still the same piss poor Lucky Lager beer, just repackaged, and um, it had a really short lifespan. I mean, I think now if you had a can of a King Snedley that was unopened, you could probably send your kids through medical school off of it. But uh, but that's the only value that beer ever had. Would you agree with marketing? The product has to lead it. You could fool people once with poor beer inside a cool looking can. But you definitely can't fool them twice. Yeah, absolutely. I think that ultimately the beer is the most important aspect of of what you're selling. the The, the difficulty is the fact that um, the marketing gets people there. The marketing is the vehicle to get people towards the towards the beer. In but in the same way that now the the most fascinating thing about social media is that even if you know there are some beers that you wouldn't even need to brand them because the hype around them that is generated through through people that kind of can create that online and that's that that kind of democratization of the way that people can spread that information is fascinating you know they you know people can just put a picture of beer up with no no branding label or no pump clip or nothing and that the hype that can be generated from it is incredible and people will particularly look to look for those beers so there's there's definitely a part of that you know that's that's quite interesting but ultimately the beer has got to be has got to be you know the best it can possibly be you uh, good branding also helps <laughs> good branding helps you touched on social media so i'm going to jump to this question now just doing a little google search as one does and uh, this one U.S. company that uh, that helps beer companies market themselves, they said over and over again, the most important thing you could have is a good website. Um, you don't have a good website. You don't even have a bad website. You don't have any website. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> so, so what's the thinking behind that? Was that a conscious decision of sticking it to the man or just laziness? Uh Probably a bit of both. Uh, we do, as as mentioned, we we tend to do things at Black Iris organically. And at the time when we first moved to Nottingham, we were selling a hundred percent cask beer to local pubs. We we knew exactly who the market was. We didn't really necessarily need to market to individual people. All the beer information we told the pubs about, and it was a very kind of old way of kind of thinking about it but as time's moved on we've embraced social media full you know wholeheartedly um 
we've got quite a popular Instagram account that you know we you know I enjoy Manning, uh, and you know we do the whole Twitter and Facebook. Uh, but the but at the time there was just no real need for us to have a website just because there was no we I mean at the time we didn't do small packs we didn't weren't doing cans and bottles so we didn't need an interface direct with the customers which is probably the main tool that a lot of people now have for it but uh, yeah partially laziness and partially uh, kind of no need I suppose I noticed you don't have a tap room you mentioned you don't you just don't have the room. How important do you think a tap room is though for marketing? I think a tap room is uh, is very important. Um, it's a it's a real shame that we uh, don't have. Uh, it's a real shame that we don't have one because quite a lot of, uh, I mean, without sounding too cliched again and without using too much of a horrible buzzword, but black, you know, being able to run your events and being able to be seen as a kind of in a, you know inverted commas lifestyle brand, it's you know, having the space to run at events like that type of thing and, you know, expand on what we do here into kind of music and art and different events, you know, we do make beer predominantly, but, you know, when we're not making beer, we're still part of a community that is based around a whole bunch of other factors and tap rooms are kind of indispensable for that kind of thing, creating something that's part of your brand that's not beer, but then also just a you know, classic revenue stream as well. Uh, a good place to kind of like launch new beers and get people in and uh, kind of really have as the, the flagship place where if you want a good pint of Black Iris, you should be able to go here and get it every single time. You know, you're touching on, on neighborhoods and um, while you're in Nottingham, I keep looking out the window and I keep thinking, hey, you are kind of in the middle of nowhere here, though you are in Nottingham. I mean, the other week when we were in purity, they truly are in the middle of nowhere. I mean, you are in Nottingham, but but it's not like people would ever walk by here. And um, I mean, maybe they do. I don't know. But uh, but it just seems like, in one hand, you're kind of a neighborhood brewery, but on the other hand, you're not. And um, you know, as Tim was saying earlier, he finds your beer in in London, which is you know, my car has a good two and a half hours down the road. Um, far from outside your neighborhood so with marketing you know how do you keep i guess that feel that you're a local neighborhood brewery but in reality you're you're looking at expanding that market it's funny because since uh, over the last two years since we've kind of uh, put a lot more uh, emphasis onto the small pack can products we have naturally seen through kind of further distribution and uh, through online sales like Ebre, our beers have been going considerably further and further. Um, I suppose, in a in a way, you know, for example, seeing our beers down in London has been, you know, is is increasing, uh, which is great because the demand is there and people are are enjoying them kind of nationally. Um, but then it's great to figure out that, you know. For example, when we were we were down in London a few weeks ago, uh, launching a three-way collab that we did with uh, Craft and Draft uh, Bottle Shop and uh, the Crypt of the Wizards, who are a death metal vinyl shop, and you know that just reminds you that you know you know the, the music community is not you know is is all is spread all over. So there's communities within communities. I mean, we still 
you know, we still have a huge amount of respect for this city. I mean, I've lived here now uh, since I was 18 uh, and I've uh, never even once thought of moving. I, I love this city, everything that it does, uh, you know. So uh, my my heart is definitely uh, my heart is definitely in Nottingham. Uh, so uh, yeah, hopefully uh, with the plans for expansion and potential tap room, we can uh, further build our neighbourhood and community credentials uh, with that. I mentioned at the beginning that I'm, I'm a fan of wonderful marketing and brilliant marketing. But I also noticed the absolute worst marketing ever. And I just want to share this with you, to our listeners. About a week ago in the States, uh, Mirage Beer, which is a Seattle-based brewery, um, they took to social media to announce the release of its newest Indian Pale Ale beers, Snitch Blood and Where You From. And they were packaged in cans designed to depict the red and blue bandanas worn by the rival Los Angeles gangs, Crips and Bloods. And uh, during their 40-year feud, uh, more than 15,000 people have been killed in L.A., and only God knows how many have been killed by the drugs they peddle. After Mirage Beer was shellacked on social media, um, they realized it was a little bit of a dumb idea, and they decided to repackage their beer. Would you go as far as to say that might be the dumbest beer marketing you've ever heard? It's uh, certainly it's certainly up there. I mean, that's I suppose that's exactly what I was referring to earlier when I was talking about direct ex- direct experience of a of a thing. Um, that's just so outside of you know what we would what we would do here because of the fact that none of us have ever lived that experience, have no kind of empirical knowledge of that situation. Why on earth would we try and kind of uh, I suppose use that for you know our, our own marketing game. It seems uh, seems bizarre. It, it seems truly bizarre. And all I just picture these you know young white guys sitting around a, a boardroom and just thinking, "Oh, it's the most brilliant idea ever." Yeah. Ever. And then you just start thinking, "What were they possibly thinking?" Yeah, it, it smacks of uh, you know the worst aspects of cultural appropriation I can possibly think exactly. of. Exactly. Um, I mean, I got to say, I have some tattoos, and I keep looking at um, a black iris and thinking, this could actually be my next tattoo I get. Um, but today we just touched upon the marketing at Black Iris. For more of a brewery visit, um, be sure to read the July-August issue of the Brewer's Journal. I'd like to thank Alex Wilson and the team at Black Iris Brewery, Jim Sheehan of the Brewer's Journal, sound engineer John Young, fact checker Rhian Owen, and a huge thanks to you, our brewing compadres, for listening in. Start making plans now to attend the next Brewer's Journal's lecture series on 25 July in Glasgow and October in Bristol with the exact date to be announced. The big show, the Brewer's Congress, will be held 28 November in London, and I hope to see all of you there. This has been your host, Velo Mitrovich.